Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. In August of 2022, Fire Island a queer adaptation of Pride and Prejudice, came out on Hulu. My friends and I were all eagerly awaiting its release, and I had a friend come over to watch it with me the day that it dropped. It did not disappoint. I loved the movie, so I invited a brilliant cultural critic, Tobin Lowe, to come on Hot and Bothered and discuss it with me as soon as possible. Frankly, it felt like Pride and Prejudice was having a big cultural moment right as we were making Live from Pemberley. We had a conversation in which Tobin offered his brilliant insights on the film. Here he is talking about why an adaptation on a Georgian heteronormative piece of 200-year-old fiction is eerily relevant, even as this film is talking about something Austin probably never gave much thought to, the love stories, sexual lives, and class issues surrounding gay Asian men in the 2020s. All the things you're talking about paint right onto gay culture, like toxic masculinity in gay culture. It's interesting how well it works for a community that is so supposedly progressive and sort of like supposed to be evolving past these very traditional ideas of relationships that, like, this sort of toxic thing, I don't know, is still existing or, like, works so well still for this community. You really don't have to change much, which is, like, kind of wild. Tobin's perspective was incisive, in part because he doesn't know the source material well. He was able to come at the movie on its own terms, and in conversation, we were able to suss out some of what the writer, producer, and star of the film, Joel Kim Booster, was up to in his adaptation. Now, we are lucky enough to speak to Joel Kim Booster himself and get into the specifics of what he was thinking about in adapting Austin. For those of you who haven't seen the film, or at least not recently, the film reimagines the Bennett sisters as Noah, played by Joel Kim Booster, and a group of his friends, all of whom are going to the queer mecca of Fire Island for a week. I can't imagine this is what the Gay Liberation Front envisioned for us. I'm pretty sure other than the Charlie XCX remix, this is exactly what they envisioned for us. 
Noah's phone falls into the pool at the beginning of the story, and so letters have to be written, miscommunications cannot be fixed immediately with a text, and people just keep running into each other. Margaret Cho charmingly plays a Mrs. Bennett figure in The Five Friends' Lives. She has owned this house on Fire Island, but is now being priced out, and so this is the last summer that this family will all be able to be together in this way. Noah's best friend is Howie, played by SNL star and love of my life, Bowen Yang. Where Noah is our Lizzie, Howie is our Jane. Howie hasn't gotten laid in a while, and so Noah makes a vow. He won't sleep with anyone until they find someone for Howie first. You're cute, you're funny, you're consistently the least repellent to men out of all of us. I mean, let me be your wingman. Everybody should fuck on Fire Island at least once. It's like our birthright. Howie, though, would maybe rather do puzzles and giggle with someone rather than have sex with them. Howie meets Charlie, the Charles Bingley, and Noah meets Will, the Fitzwilliam Darcy. The Lydia Wickham betrayal in Fire Island is a serious one. Luke, the Lydia character, has a one-night stand with Dex, the Wickham character. Dex, without Luke's permission, posts a video of them having sex on his OnlyFans account. Will and Noah get Dex to take it down, and unlike Lydia, Luke is completely supported by his group of friends and entirely welcomed back into the fold. He is obviously worse for the wear, but the chosen family of this group of five friends does what the Bennets don't, show unconditional and complete love for Luke slash Lydia. There are obviously a lot of updates and changes in this adaptation, close as it is, but the biggest difference is in the ending of the film. The film takes the story of Pride and Prejudice from an H-E-A to an H-F-N, a happily ever after to a happily for now. Will and Noah realize that they have a strong connection. They fall for each other. But when there is conversation about seeing each other again after the week is over, the answer is, we'll see. I'm Vanessa Zoltan, and this is Live from Pemberley from Hot and Bothered. Hi, Joel. Hi. Thank you for speaking to us all the way from California. We're very grateful. Thank you so much for having me. So I just want to start, you know, Pride and Prejudice obviously starts with this amazing opening line. And you start your movie, Fire Island, with the same opening line as Pride and Prejudice and refer to Jane Austen as the queen. Yes. And and I, I want to clear something up here, too, because I've gotten dragged lightly for misunderstanding the irony of the opening quote of Pride and Prejudice. And I, I think I probably could have done it a little bit more gracefully or maybe made this a little bit more obvious, but I do understand the irony <laughs> of the original quote and, and how it's not necessarily meant to be taken literally. I guess I, I assumed that people would take it for the joke that it is at the top of the movie as well. And I don't proclaim to be an expert at Jane Austen. I've read every Jane Austen book, Sans Lady Susan. I, I just, I, I want to I put that up top that I, I do understand the meaning of that 
opening line of Pride and Prejudice, it's it's not something that I missed. And it's just something that I, I clumsily used in my movie. So I apologize to all the Austinites out there who are mad at me for mis- misusing the quote at the top of the movie. I think that you could not possibly watch your movie and be confused about whether or not you understand irony. <laughs> so I feel like that is a, an ungenerous way to deal with the opening of your film. So well, thank you. Yeah. But you also call her the queen. I'm wondering yes. what your relationship to Queen Austin is. I took a survey of Austin in college, and that was like my first real introduction to her because I, of course, read Pride and Prejudice when I was in high school and Sense and Sensibility when I was in high school, and it didn't quite hit then, and it didn't quite hit either in college, to be quite honest. And it really wasn't until I was an adult and sort of ensconced in the gay community and coming of age in the gay community that it really, I really sort of understood her observations on social mores and the class system and, and the ways in which people communicate across class lines. That really hit. I mean, I brought Pride and Prejudice to read, reread for the first time as an adult on my first trip to Fire Island. And I've written about this before, but it, it really was sort of the, the distillation of all of those themes sort of as I was living them on the island. And, and it, it fully made me realize how relevant her observations were to me as a 21st century, 20-something gay man. Yeah. What specifically, like, is there an example of an observation that you were like, oh, this is painful, that this is still relevant? The thing that Jane Austen understands better than anybody or understood better than anybody before there was necessarily even a word for it is shade. Mm-hmm. You know, shade is complicated because it is an insult with plausible deniability. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's like you're saying something devastating to somebody, but they can't necessarily call you out on it being devastating, you Uh know? Like it is like sort of said sweetly or said with enough plausible deniability that on paper, it it doesn't necessarily read out of context as an insult. And I think of, you know, Caroline Bingley as sort of the queen of shade in Pride and Prejudice in a lot of ways. And just a lot of things that she said and a lot of attitudes really went over my head when I was reading her as a teenager. And then as I was like a a card-carrying member of the gay community, I realized fully, I was like, oh, this is how people talk to each other and are cruel to each other in secret ways in Mm -hmm. modern gay society. And so that, you know, is, is sort of really the, the crux of it for me was Caroline Bingley. Yeah. Caroline gets to do it because she has a lot of power. Mary doesn't really have the opportunity to throw shade. No, 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 no. I am wondering what your relationship was to Pride and Prejudice as you adapted, as you worked on the screenplay. Was it on set with you? Because Your movie is such a faithful adaptation. Noah overhears Will say a very similar line to what Lizzie overhears Darcy say, right? Like, it is Mm -hmm. a really plot-to-plot point adaptation. Mm -hmm. And so I'm wondering, like, did you have Pride and Prejudice right there? Were you trying to capture the spirit of it? I reread it right before I started writing the script, and I I really lived and breathed. I, I would have the BBC miniseries basically playing on loop as my background noise while I was writing the movie. And for me, like, I really took a lot from Clueless Mm -hmm. as an example. Like, I think what Amy Heckerling did and the choices she made to adapt Emma were really 
sort of the inspiration point for me in, in making this movie because I think she was just so smart in the moments where she sort of directly, you know, overlaid what happens in Emma onto Clueless. And then the sort of creative choices that she had to make to update and modernize it were really inspiring to me. And I, it was a little bit like you want to walk a fine line between being faithful and sort of putting those Easter eggs in for the actual fans and also making it a coherent story for people who aren't familiar with Pride and Prejudice and who just want to watch, you know, a fun, light rom-com. Right. So I was definitely in the text, um, but it was I was far more concerned with making it a legible movie for people to watch beyond it as well. I'm wondering with certain characters in particular, like Lydia, for example, mm-hmm. I think there are a lot of different ways to read Lydia, right? And we've spoken to a lot of professors who have different points of view on Lydia, that Lydia is either the character who never learns and Austin is judging that, or there's actually something feminist about Lydia that she doesn't actually get punished, even though she sort of goes on a sexual exploration. I'm wondering about how you decided to do a read on Lydia. What are you trying to say with her modernization through Luke? I I would say in many ways, like Lydia is the biggest departure. Like I sort of rewrote Lydia's ending in a big way in the movie because of the reason, the ways in which I updated the scandal Mm -hmm. in this book, which was one of the hardest things. I think the Wickham character was really, really difficult to try and figure out what is a modern day equivalent of that level of humiliation, especially within the gay community. And as someone who's had my private pictures posted online and shared online and disseminated online, like that felt really personal to me and and something that happens to a lot of people in this day and age. And it felt really important to sort of like honor as a part of like this area of gay culture. But I also like the movie is so much about family and chosen family. And I wanted to sort of rewrite the ending a little bit and make sure that Luke comes back to the fold and that there is some reconciliation there. And that at the end of the day, it didn't make sense to me to write a movie about a group of friends who weren't really friends. Mm -hmm. You know, Lydia is so blind to the machinations that went into making sure that her situation ends up okay. But I I really wanted it to feel more joyful at the end than it could be and and for the family to be intact. So yeah, I, I definitely took some liberties there. And I, there's a case to be made that like, I made it a little cheesier than, you know, the, the reality of, what Austin depicts. Mm -hmm. I haven't, I guess, done enough reading to see Lydia as a feminist hero. I I see her more as sort of a victim of the time. Like, no one can blame Lydia for wanting what she wants in that situation. But in the long run, it is something that is, like, extremely damaging for her. So, and that's sort of what um, I wanted to take directly from that story and, and lay it over on my movie is is someone wanting something and understanding why they want it and then getting it and, and not being at all close to the reality that they had pictured. Yeah, the end of the movie is one of the things that is fascinating to me. And I think the queering of it is so important. And so I'd love to hear you talk more about it specifically, right? A romance novel is a romance novel because of the happily ever after, right? Mm-hmm. Or the happily for now. And your movie so pointedly is like, this is happily for right now, right? Like there's a very in this momentness of it, which is obviously very different 
than how Pride and Prejudice ends with like this, not only a promise of forever, but like a glimpse of what forever looks like. And I'm wondering if you could talk about that departure a little bit. Well, part of it is just for realism's sake, right? Because I think like the movie takes place over the course of a week. I I wanted to respect the reality of what I've experienced in week-long vacations, which is you meet a vacation boyfriend. Sometimes it works out. Many times, more often than not, it doesn't. And it sort of fades away. And you may, you know, remain friends, connected on Instagram, whatever, see each other when you're in the same city, et cetera, et cetera. But I think like there's a real magic. And it's funny because the ending changed a little bit. I ended up going on vacation to Puerto Vallarta, a big gay destination, much like Fire Island, and meeting my current boyfriend there. And it was so funny. I, I, I lugged my vacation boyfriend back to the real world and made it a real thing. Huh. And I became a Howie instead of a Noah for the first time <laughs> in my life. And it's funny because I tweaked the ending a little bit. It was much more Noah and Will's ending. The original line that Will says at the end of the movie to Noah is, who cares, not we'll see. And I think that the the slight adjustment to we'll see happened because of my boyfriend in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. I wanted it to feel a little bit more hopeful than I think it originally started as. For me, it just felt like there were two love stories and there were two ways to depict how those end. Like, I do think, you know, if I were to ever do a sequel, it would be very obviously Charlie and Howie's wedding. You know, I think like okay. sometimes when it when it works, it works. And like, you know, and I think like in that case, like if they can survive three months off the island, then it's done. You know, like some mm-hmm. people are like that. And I think I was also sort of BBC pilled by just remembering the double wedding uh, <laughs> at the end of the BBC miniseries. And just like that is one of, was one of my favorite scenes in the movie when I was growing up. And it was like I wanted to as best as I could as realistically as I could in the span of a week, recreate that energy. I love that. I love that your real life made you more hopeful and not more cynical. I feel like that is (laughs) often not the way it goes. But okay, so while we're talking about Will and Noah, how do you see their flaws as similar to the flaws of Lizzie and Darcy? I mean... It really goes back to, and this is the beauty and the simplicity of the story, ultimately, is it's pride and prejudice, right? Noah has a lot of prejudice because of the hurt that he's experienced in the community, but he also has a lot of pride, you know, in who he is and his own ideals and and the man that he's built himself up to be. And I think the reverse is true of, of Will. Like, he has a lot of judgment about the gay community, which many gay men do, and specifically what things like Fire Island represent to the community and and a lot of pride about the man that he has built himself up to be. And I think there's a lot of, like, it was really important to me in that regard, too, to have both of these characters be people of color. Because I think, especially with Will, there's a sort of underlying, like, understanding of the damage that this community has done to him, probably, mm-hmm. and why he's removed himself from it or is cynical about it or is especially cynical about places like Fire Island. Mm-hmm. And so that's where a lot of the prejudice comes in and it's detangling those and then figuring out also where those two flaws sort of complement each other mm-hmm. when they realize they're actually more so on the same page on a lot of the things that they are prejudiced against and a lot of the things that they're prideful about. 
Yeah. I mean, speaking of, how did you pick Alice Monroe as the author that would bring them together? You know, for, it, it was a clearance issue on one hand. And uh-huh. then on the other hand, it was mostly what I like to read when I'm on Fire Island. Because like, if it were Pride and Prejudice, it would be one of these things of like, oh, wink, wink, like we see what he's doing. But I just wanted to generally like show sort of that he is a reader and like, yeah. and divorce it from the the concept of the movie. And like, it's unfortunate that... Uh, you can't see the book he's reading on the beach, but the book he's reading on the beach is Angela Davis's Our Prisons Obsolete. And that mm-hmm. was like, that was the one that they were really afraid they couldn't clear. And so we, we had to obscure it. But I wanted to tell a story of the kind of guy Noah is yeah. through the books that he's reading. And there were several other scenes, or there, not several, but there were a couple other scenes that were cut basically um, because we couldn't figure out ways to get them in. But I wanted to tell, you know, a sort of background story about who he is based on the books that he was reading while he was on the island. Yeah, I love that. I'm wondering what the casting process was like. If you were like, I'm looking for a very specific kind of person who looks a very specific kind of way. I mean, the casting my opinion, is so brilliant with Conrad as Will Fitzwilliam Darcy, like the evolution of being like, this guy is an irredeemable jerk to, oh no, he is shy. Oh no, right? Like that is an incredible arc to go on. And I'm wondering, yeah, if there is anything sort of revelatory that happened in the casting process. You know, Conrad was definitely like a real find. It was interesting because I originally wrote the character to be a person of color, but not necessarily Asian. Mm -hmm. And in fact, the original version of the script that we went into with casting, there are certain more complicated conversations or different kind of complicated conversations that occur when it's like an Asian person talking to a black person Mm -hmm. and then having Noah be again, really called out by like, I know that you you feel a certain kind of way in this community. But my experience, the way I move in this community is also very different than your experience of the way. Mm -hmm. And so I was hesitant to make it a fully Asian narrative, which just sounds insane to say now, having the movie, you know, being out the way it is now. But then Conrad came in and did a chemistry read with me. And it was so immediately apparent that he was the right guy for this movie mm-hmm. that he left the room and I immediately was like, no, I, I, I know what this story is now. Mm-hmm. And he really made it click into place for me in, in a huge way. And so that was, that was a big one. I think um, the casting of the main core group of friends was really important. Mm-hmm. Bowen was attached you know, from the beginning. This movie was always going to be about me and Bowen from the earliest conception when it was actually, I was trying to sell it as a television show. It was about me and Bowen. And it really was like my friendship with Bowen inspired every part of this, of this story, but it was really difficult to cast the the rest of the friends. I mean, I won't lie. I wrote Lydia with Matt in mind. I've been friends with Matt for, you know, close to a decade now. And, and I, and I think that that takes a special kind of person who can play someone so annoying and yet so lovable. Yep. And I think Matt really, without a lot of real estate, pulls it off mm-hmm. really, really well. And um, so I was glad I was able to do this movie with my two best friends. But um, it was really the the Kitty and the Mary characters that were most difficult because, again, like I'm doing a movie that I wanted to ideally rest under two hours mm-hmm. and to have two characters that will have impact with a little to do 
it was really important to us. And so we searched far and wide for these characters. And I think there was a lot of pressure from the studio of like, can we get some names in there? We want like, you know, well-known people in these parts. And that was difficult because like well-known people didn't want to take a chance on a small role, A. And B, it just never felt right. Like it, it, these people needed to feel like friends and they needed to feel real and it needed to feel like they could pop with the screen time that they had. And I had worked with Torian on a play when I was in Chicago many, many years ago. And, you know, we were really searching and I, I, I sort of was rolling through my Rolodex and I was like, let's reach out to him. And I don't even think he had an agent at the time. And so he read for us. And again, it was one of those things. It was the humor of, of Max is something that a lot of people missed. And I think like, there was a lot of danger of like there sort of being overlap between Noah and Max in many ways, because they're the two, you know, most sort of intellectual, smart characters, or so Noah would like to think anyways. And But Max reads Madeline Albright. And... Exactly. Yes, yes. I, I think <laughs> and it's Noah like the different... reads Angela Davis. It's very it's, different. Yeah. It's 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 liberal versus left. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think is the is the the decision that we made about those characters. And and then Tomas was just the ultimate find, because that character could have been very small and sort of forgettable if we hadn't cast someone larger than life. And Tomas just injected so much of themselves into the movie. And all of us did end up becoming such incredible friends by the end of it. It was really deeply important for me to cast people that could vibe, you know, the whole way through, because I think chemistry can only be faked so far, you know? Yeah, absolutely. I have read some reviews that have said that Howie is a combination of Jane and Charlotte. And I'm wondering if that is how you think of Howie or if he's yeah, the just answer Jane. Is yes. Okay, great. The answer is, 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 is yes. And I'm glad that people picked up on it because I think that Charlotte is such an important character in that story. And I really wanted to honor that. And it, and it fit really well in the story I was trying to tell in the complication of the different sort of layers to the ways in which these two characters navigate differently, this community. I think one of the most important scenes in the movie and one of my favorite scenes in the movie to shoot and to write is the confrontation in the bathroom Mm -hmm. where, you know, the entire movie there is this bond between Howie and Noah and it connects them because of their race and the ways in which Asian men are, you know, treated within the gay community. But the elephant in the room is that in tackling body fascism in the gay community, there is a difference between Bona and I. And I wanted to honor that in that scene by having, you know, Howie confront Noah on we're not the same. And and I thought that was really an important piece to tackle because I know what I look like and I know that I have a certain amount of privilege within the community that does not necessarily negate the racism that I experience in the community, but it does give me, again, if we're talking about the different currencies within the community, I have that. And that really was for me, like the Charlotte moment of the movie where he really does switch from being Jane to Charlotte in a huge way. Yeah. And that, Bowen by playing Charlotte in that moment, right? Is like, I know what I look like. And that means I have to make a different series of choices. Yeah. And it's sort of calling out, 
the willful naivety of of Noah in yeah. that moment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that people, some people, you know, even people who are oppressed in many different ways are also deeply unaware of the ways they're also privileged. And it, it's also complicated. It's not a it's not a black and white easy thing to just talk about, no matter how much Twitter wants to make it a black and white easy thing to talk about. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how get 30, how get 20, 20, 20, how get 20, 20, how get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. So the Bechdel test, as I think you might know, there was a lot of brouhaha about the Bechdel test and your movie. So the Bechdel test, for those of our listeners who don't know, is something created by Alison Bechdel, who has named that one of the ways to measure a movie is whether or not there is a scene in which two women talk to one another about something other than a man. And a cultural critic took a big misstep, in my opinion, and pointed out that your movie does not technically pass the Bechdel test. I'm wondering what you think about things like the Bechdel test and different cultural frames to approach movies and books, et cetera. You know, it's interesting. There's a lot of really interesting stories to be told about the way in which women, both queer and straight, navigate gay male spaces. Mm -hmm. And I just didn't feel like there were was a lot of real estate to do it justice in this. I'm also not sure I'm the one to be telling that story, you know? And so I wanted to tell a story that felt authentic to me and that I could tell with some authority. And I think like the Bechdel test is, is a really easy thing to sort of sidestep any actual analysis sometimes. Mm -hmm. It's it's really easy to like on paper, yes, my movie does not pass the Bechdel test, but the Bechdel test is not meant to be sort of like the end of a conversation. You right. know, like I think many times it's supposed to be the jumping off point for a deeper conversation about movies. And I think like without context, it's sort of meaningless. And I and the way in which that tweet, the original tweet, the offending tweet was <laughs> was written was so strange to me in that like it's a, it just felt like someone who did not understand the story that was being told and didn't want to understand the story that was being told and felt you know a little vaguely racist even in the way at like in which she utilized the word boy I guess is is my main takeaway from it 
But yeah, it was a wild day on Twitter. I'll say that. Okay. Like I, I, I had not been used to being the main character, even tangentially. And um, I was glad that it was largely, you know, people did not agree. So I was grateful for that. But yeah, I, I don't really have like deep thoughts about that situation because I'm glad that Allison spoke out sort of in defense of the movie. And yeah. I don't consider myself someone who wants to erase female experiences in movies, but I also, <laughs> I, I just didn't think this was the movie that needed to explore it. Again, it felt similar to people who are like criticizing how you handled the opening line. It's like, well, you are just intentionally misunderstanding what is going on, or at least not trying to understand what is going on in this movie. Yeah, yeah. I mean, but speaking of the gender politics around your movie, I'm wondering how you felt about the fact that like this was going to have sort of like, traditionally speaking, a white female gaze on it because of Pride and Prejudice, right? I mean, I sat down to watch it. I was like, an adaptation of Pride and Prejudice? Okay, right? And so I'm wondering if that was like in your consideration and how that felt. I was so writing this from a queer perspective that I, it's so funny. I didn't ever even consider that the, I, I just, I, I, it, it, for me, like, yes, I was writing a Pride and Prejudice adaptation. And I think even the studio was like really excited by that, the stickiness of that idea. And, yeah. but f- I guess I didn't think people would catch on to it. I, I didn't think people mm-hmm. would be analyzing it as a Pride and Prejudice adaptation. I just thought it was, I was writing like a big gay movie and that people would mostly be analyzing it from the lens of, of the queer experience. And so, of course, though, of course, like in hindsight, no one loves to write male, male fan fiction more than like literary cis women. You mm-hmm. know? <laughs> like, yeah. So much of, I think, like the best gay love stories I've read of fan fiction have been written by cis women. Um, and so I, I, you know, it is so funny that I, I never expected it and I never, I wasn't really considering it. I was so, so, so concerned about doing my community proud that I was laser focused on making this a movie that felt by gay people for gay people. And I wasn't really concerned with like how straight people were going to react, straight women. It didn't dawn on me because I I wanted it to just feel so authentically queer. Yeah. Hulu did a brilliant job marketing it to me. I'm I'm so glad. It was like, you will love this based on how many times you've watched the 2020 Emma. And I'm like, thank you. (laughs) I do love it. Joel, just one one last question for you. One of the really high stakes things in both Fire Island and Pride and Prejudice is that there is a house that people who are in a slightly precarious situation are at risk of losing. And in Pride and Prejudice, there is this idea that it can be saved, right? That like if one of the girls gets married in a certain way, the house can be saved. And Sort of from the outset in Fire Island, this house that brings together this chosen family every year is definitely going to be lost. And yet, right, like you have this moment where like sort of the family continues at the end. And I'm wondering, yeah, I'm I'm wondering if you ever thought about saving the house in some way or what the house came to symbolize in your version of sort of Longborn. There were definitely versions of the script where through deus ex machina sort of uh, moment that the house gets saved. But I think one of the things that, despite how much I love the island, 
the things I'm most critical about it are sort of the inaccessibility of the island to a certain class of people. Mm-hmm. And for me, like I didn't want to shy away from the reality of that by the end of the movie. Yeah. And so it was far more important for me to make sure that this unit, this unit felt not only intact by the end, even though they may or may not ever, you know, find their way back to the island again in the same way. But not only was it intact, but it was growing and that mm-hmm. it could exist anywhere because of the bonds that they, they shared there. And it felt sort of dishonest to make a completely happy ending to this movie because that's not the reality that I see. So, yeah, I, I think a lot of people were disappointed by that because I did make a cheesy rom-com where a lot of people got the happy ending. But I, I don't know. I just felt sort of like it wasn't something that I ultimately wanted to sort of give the island a pass on. Mm-hmm. So Yeah. Well, and it's actually faithful, right? The Bennets end up okay, but Mrs. Bennett is going to get kicked out of Longbourn, right? Yeah. Like she's not going to get to retire in the house that she kept. So I don't know. I thought it was a beautiful homage. Well, thank you so much for coming on and talking about Fire Island. I think it Thanks is just a brilliant adaptation. Thank you so favorite much. favorite Pride and Prejudice adaptations. Thank you very much. I really appreciate that. That's that's high, high praise. You've been listening to Live from Pemberley. If you can, please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash hot and bothered rom pod. And another reminder to please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you are listening. We are Not Sorry Production. Our executive producer is Caitlin Hoffmeister. We're edited and produced by Ariana Nettleman and we are distributed by Acast. Thanks as always to our Jane level patrons, Baroness Gretchen Sneegas of Breakfast Carbston, Knight Molly Reilly of Worcestershire Sauce, the Countess of Kristen Hall, Dame Leah B of Pickleshire, Dame Becky Boo of Tiaralandia, Marquess Tucker Kratt of Seltzerworth, Duchess Lauren of the Tesseract, and the Right Honorable Claudia Hammerman of Penn Pallium. Thanks also to our special guest this week, Joel Kim Booster, for talking to us. Laura Glass, Margaret H. Willis, and AJ Yaramas, Julia Argy, Nikki Zoltan, Hannah Rehack, Courtney Brown, Stephanie Paulsell, and all of our patrons. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.